You told you that her husband was a CES director for a number of years, and so she's been in close to the teaching and teaching process, and that's why I was anxious to move her into my office as a therapist along, along with me, and she's been quite a blessing to us. So, All right. That said, um, th- this little part of the Book of Mormon, I finally had... I'm gonna, this, is the, this is the tease at the beginning of the lesson. I had a mystery solved for me this week that I have had that uh, I've been chewing on for a long time that I couldn't figure out about our culture and and this week I finally got an answer on that. More coming later. <laughs> All right. Oh, let's see. I need to get my handy dandy. Let's see if we can't get this working also. All right. Just a reminder that that when we teach, uh, we can be caught up in what we think a class wants to hear and what a class should hear. And when we read the material for whatever lesson we're teaching, from nursery on through to gospel doctrine, we think we know. But it's so critical that we, that we understand uh, our audience that we are speaking to. Uh, and that's going to be especially true of um, as we're looking in the the Book of Mormon again to understand the context of why things are written the way they are and why and what what things that uh, Mormon included and what he left out in the Book of Mormon it's so important that we consider the audience that's being taught to so part of that is we have to understand who is asking the question. The key that goes always with, and that's especially true in the New Testament. You never look at something that the Savior is saying in the New Testament without the fact that about 70% of the time somebody asked a question and he's answering it. So you gotta you got to understand why he's answer, what the question was and why he's answering it the way that he is. Book of Mormon is certainly true too <coughs> because we're going to have a number of cases here where there are questions being asked of Alma. And so you've got to know who's, a, who's asking the question and you have to know some background behind that person that's asking the question. And then, who else is listening? When a question's being asked, very rarely is this being done one-on-one. It's in a, it's in a group of people that are surrounding it. So there's a, there's a context that goes with this. And then we're going to understand why these things are said. Uh, that said, so let, let's now pop over to Alma 12. Um, let's do it this way. All right. One of the nice things about the Book of Mormon, we read it so much that we're much more familiar with these things. We can kind of step in wherever we need to. Um, remember, this is uh, Alma and Amulek, or uh, as President Uchtdorf would say, this is Amalek. Oh. <laughs> um, Somebody needs to explain to the German how to pronounce uh, English stuff. Okay. So, so now remember that we've had this discussion. They've caught Zeezrom, the attorney, lying to them that he didn't. He was going to offer him a bribe. They do that. He didn't intend to pay it. The idea is to trip up the the speakers, because as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, in this setting of the Nahors. If you can get a man to, to, if you can prove that he's lying, that's a falsehood. You can stone and kill him for that under the law of Moses. He broke one of the Ten Commandments. We can get you for that. So the, the job of the attorneys was constantly to trip you up by your words, not just so that we can prove that you're wrong, but so that you can die. <laughs> so that we can get you out of our midst so you quit preaching all this doom and gloom about our system and about our people. We don't like being told we're wrong. So the goal of Zeezrom had been to trip Alma up. Now, uh, Alma, seeing the words that Amulek had silenced Zeezrom, uh, Amulek had caught him in his lying and deceiving. Zeezrom starts to tremble under a consciousness of his guilt. Um, 
Now, Zeezrom, to his credit, uh, uh, began to change how he's going to do things. Uh, verse 3, the Lord knows all thy thoughts. Thy thoughts are known unto us by the Spirit. Uh, 5, this is a plan of the adversary. Uh, this is a snare of the adversary to catch you in this lying that you're doing. Now, when Alma had said these words, Zeezrom <coughs> began to tremble. He's convinced more and more of the power of God. And he's also convinced that Alma and Amulek had had a knowledge of him. Um, I've, I've told the story before, but just as a reminder, we have a similar thing with... Uh, uh, Jay Golden Kimball. When we bring up Jay Golden Kimball, everybody you know you everybody knows a Jay Golden Kimball joke, and if you don't, you should. Um, but one of the things that we miss with Jay Golden Kimball is that he's on a mission to the deep south. He walks into a bar. Uh, it sounds like a joke, but it wasn't. He walked into a bar, and he stands up on the counter and he starts preaching. And the people were uh, really kind of getting on him. And Jay Golden, being Jay Golden, said, um, If you guys don't settle down, I'll start pointing out your sins. <laughs> and they just thought he was a joke. And so they start, they get on him more. And, and finally he stopped and he started pointing fingers. You're committing adultery. <laughs> You're stealing from your neighbor. And he just starts naming their sins and the place emptied. <laughs> <laughs> Because he was being given by the Spirit to be able to name exactly what their sins were. Um, so, this is not without precedent. Uh, so now Zeezrom is starting to have a change of heart. Zeezrom began to inquire them diligently that he might know concerning the kingdom of God. Now listen to the question that he asks. And it's, a, it's fascinating that for these guys, of all the things he could ask... What's he going to ask? What does this mean which Amulek hath spoken concerning the resurrection of the dead? Of everything he could have talked about, the resurrection is the thing he wants. To, he's most concerned about. Why? He thinks he's going to die. <laughs> Part of it is he may be, yeah, he might be ready to die. Okay? Why else? He sees how bad his sins are so if there's going to be this resurrection, because remember, Amulek is talking in pretty stark terms, and we're going to talk about this in a second, there's a resurrection of life and a resurrection of damnation. Okay? Why else? Present? You'd have to have some pretty good input in order to answer that question. That would, that would give him ability to what he's saying. Yeah, I need you to have. I need you to fill in some more things for me here. Uh, now, but I will say, by the way, let me just pop over here for a second. Uh, and I've got Alma forty, uh, verse one here. This is actually. I'm going to pop over here for a second. So here we are over at Alma forty, uh, and this is where Alma uh, down the road here is going to be talking to his son uh, Corianton. Who is, who is, and we're going to find out, apostatized on his mission. He didn't just go off the rail and, and go have a fling. He apostatized. He tied into uh, the Nahor religion, and he's going to do a number of things there. <clears throat> and, and one of the things that's going to happen, look in verse 1, Alma. Alma says, And now, my son, there is someone I would more say unto thee, for I perceive that thy mind is worried about what? The resurrection of the dead. This is a concern among these people. Why would why would that be? Well, we need to go back. I'm going to go one. I'm going to link to one more thing here, and it's in Alma one four. Can you see that above the verse eight? So if we go back to Alma one four, it would be kind of good to know what what Nahor was teaching. Okay, what's Nahor teaching? Verse 4, this is in Alma 1. Nahor testified unto the people that all mankind should be saved at the last day, that they need not fear and tremble, that they might lift up their heads and rejoice, for the Lord had created all men and had redeemed all men. 
there's a problem right there. Okay. And it redeemed all men, and in the end, all men should have eternal life. Okay? Do the Nahors believe in resurrection? No. What do they believe in? The salvation of all men. Whatever you do is fine. Now, how, how can we prove that we're going to be saved? What gives us, where are we looking to for our salvation? It can't be in Christ, because we're going to eliminate the idea of there being a Christ. What gives us proof that we will be saved at the last day? Do we live the law of Moses. So we can live the law of Moses, do whatever we want to do, really. But And even if we're breaking the law of Moses, if our attorneys can parse it just right to validate what we're doing, we can still be saved, even though we're robbing people, we're doing all kinds of stuff. Um, but if our, if our attorneys can help us parse our words in the law of Moses, then we, then we can prove that we're saved because we are Israelites and we're living the law of Moses. Yeah. If it says there in verse 4, it says, and all men should have eternal life. So how do we don't need the body. In other words, eternal life means we're going to live with God. See, our context says eternal life means a resurrected body. In the, in the life of the Nahors, especially where they've, they've lopped off the, the doctrine of Christ, there's no resurrection, there's just redemption. You get, We are Israelites, we will live in the bosom of Abraham forever. Why? Because we're Israelites. We keep the law of Moses. It's like the people in the, that are going to stand on the Ramiampton. We'll talk about that a little bit in just a second. They're going to stand on the top and say, We're grateful we've been redeemed and everybody else is damned. <laughs> Why? Because we're Israelites. Because we, we keep the law of Moses. And whatever we do will be okay because of who we are. Because we keep the law of Moses. They just, that's where redemption comes from. Okay? So whatever you do is okay. So for Amulek to walk in and go, no, there is a resurrection, A, that's weird, and there's a resurrection of life and damnation, now that means, wait, I'm getting this body back, and I may be in hell, in fire and brimstone. Well, that's a, that's a game changer. And it certainly got their attention. So one of the first things then that, uh, back to Alma 12, one of the first things that Zeezrom wants to know is, you need to tell me more about this resurrection thing, because this is outside our, our understanding. Um, by the way, the, the uh, Nahors are very, very close to the Sadducees at the time of the Savior. The Sadducees also didn't believe in a resurrection for all the same reasons. We can, we can be as rich as we want to be, uh, and we can cheat the poor in the temple in our temple taxes, but because we live the law of Moses, we're okay. The Sadducees and the Nahors are really close cousins in the way that they approach life, because we keep the law of Moses. Okay. So, what does this resurrection of the dead mean? Now, here's the problem that we have. And let me, let me just put it this way. We had a discussion at the last part of <clears throat> spring semester, and I'm, I want to talk about it again because I think it's critical to how we read these next few chapters. And, and the mystery that I've been trying to solve for the longest time is, why is it that Latter-day Saints can have such a hard time with grace and get caught up in perfectionism and believe that we are saved by works? That we want to... That, that for the longest time we used to send missionaries out and it was always like, well, them born-agains believe in, just you just believe and you're saved, but we believe it's in works and we're saved by works. We're getting much, much better these days in the church of being able to say, this ain't about works, this is about grace. But what set of scriptures do we know more than any other? The Book of Mormon. And if you were going to read the Book of Mormon, would you say that you're saved by grace or by works? Watch how the watch where we got this from. Okay, and I need you to see why. Okay, now. So Alma begins to expand. It's many to know the mysteries of God. Now, listen to his problem. He's got he's got two problems here. Here's the first one. 
Uh, it's given unto many to know the mysteries of God, like me, Alma. Nevertheless, I am laid under a strict command that I shall not impart only that portion of the word which he doth grant unto the children of men according to the heed and diligence they give unto him. Verse 10. Uh, Therefore, he, meaning Zeezrom, you guys, Nahors, all of you, so all of you uh, that will harden your heart and, and shall, you will receive the lesser portion of the word. And he that will not harden his heart, and ain't you, because you guys have, and to him is given the greater portion of the word. So, because I'm, I'm obeying the commandments, I'm receiving the greater word. Because you, Nahors, are, aren't keeping the commandments, you're receiving the lesser word. Does that make sense? Now, let's talk about resurrection. And I'm going to try and preach resurrection to people that can only receive the lesser portion. Because you're not keeping the commandments. This understanding of what happens at resurrection and the spirit world and all that, this is the mysteries. This is the higher stuff. What's after the veil? What's over there? Well, I can't even really tell you because you're wicked. You're receiving the lesser portion. So there's his first hump, stumbling block. I've got to try and teach you guys, and you're not even obedient, and, you're, and all you can receive is the lesser light. Now, there is one other problem here. And it's that Alma himself does not yet know what's on the other side of the veil. In his own growth, in, in, the, in the maturing of the gospel and the church and the understanding in Zarahemla, Alma himself does not yet know completely. Not because he's a lesser light, he's a greater light, but just in terms of his own growth and understanding and what's been revealed to him. Okay. Now, how do we know that? I was thinking that the writings gave the Corinthians. Yes. He has to inquire later on. He does have to inquire later on. Let me give you an example of of why it is that we know that Alma did not yet have the fullness full understanding of this either. Look at verse twenty four. Now we see that death comes upon mankind, that death which was spoken of by Amulek, which is the temporal death. Therefore this life became a probationary state, this life, a time to prepare to meet God, a time to prepare for that endless state which has been spoken of us, which is after the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so hold on here. He's talking about two periods of time, right? There is... This life, this life is the probationary state. And then he says, then there's this life over here which is after the resurrection of the dead. What's he missing? The spirit world. Right after that, that endless state which has been spoken of us, comma, that's where the spirit world is. And his understanding at this moment is, we go from this life... And then there's going to be this life over here, which is the resurrection of the dead. And I'm not quite sure what goes right in between this life and the resurrection. I don't know. Now, how do we know that? Stay with me. One more here. Let's go up to... I'm going to, I'm going to jump over to Alma 40. This is, this is in his conversation with Corianton. And by the way, this is now, uh, this is ten years later. This discussion with Zeezrom is happening about 82 B.C. And his discussions with his son will be at 72 B.C. Ten years later between these two discussions. In 72 B.C., he says, uh, and I love this, verse 6, Huh. You know, there must needs be a space twixt the, team, the time of death and the time of the resurrection. <laughs> yeah. So he's been, it's like, 
I don't, I don't know what comes between death and the resurrection. There must be, okay? Then he says, And now I would inquire what becometh of the souls of men. Um, and, and he's going to go on to say, um, I've, asked, I've asked diligently. Um, in verse 3, I will show you one thing which I inquired diligently of the Lord that I might know. I didn't know. And so I'm now, I, I am being taught, what is, what is in that spirit world thing? And even then, he's still not getting a complete understanding, but he's got more than he had. Okay? So he's going to say, I inquired diligently, because I know there must be a space, uh, and, I would, and I, I would inquire, and I did, what becometh of the souls of the men from that time appointed, um, and, and verse 9, And now concerning this space of time, which becometh of the souls of men, which I have inquired diligently of the Lord to know, and this is the thing of which I do now know. Now I got it. I asked, I got it. I didn't have it ten years ago, I got it now. Okay? Does that, does that make sense? See, I, one of the things that I think is so critical, and why I think this is important, and why I wanted to come back and revisit this, it's important that we allow prophets and the church and gospel knowledge within the church to grow. It's important that we don't hold Brigham Young to the same level of knowledge that we would hold Elder Bednar. Because even though they are prophets, they are also subject to the same learning curve that happens along. President Monson has at his... Uh, beck and call and his understanding the combined revelations and inspiration that have been given to all the the prophets and general authorities for the past however part of the year uh, of the years and President Monson knows more than Joseph F. Smith did is that blasphemous? no, that's just growth that Elder Holland has at his uh, as his understanding much more gospel knowledge than did uh, John A. Widso, a mountain of an intelligent man in the church. Yeah. This has to do also with the fact that, that we are immature in the gospel. Um, yes. And the fact that, like, where wisdom was given during Joseph, it wasn't made a commandment until much later. Right. People weren't ready to live it. Right. So, so we get this learning curve, right. Uh, now, why is, this, why is this so important that we understand the growth of prophets and the growth of cultures and the growth of the church? Why is that so critical now? We are still growing. We are still growing. Okay. I think one of the things that uh, trips us up is we say we have the fullness of the gospel. Yes. And so we think we've got everything we need to know. Well, we do have everything we need as far as the other thing being redeemed to be saved. I mean, we have the ordinances, we have the basic things that we need, but knowledge, there's still much to be added. Right. This, this testifies to me that we believe in the, the, the God is living, we, the, the, the gospel is living. Yes, it's growing. Yeah, it's not something dead, it's not a dead end. Think what's happening though outside. When people are attacking the church today, or people are struggling with doctrines of the church, or they're struggling with our history in the church, where do they go to beat us up? Statements by the prophets in the past. Especially with the black issue. Yes, there's one. Sure, but but one of the things they but let's let's take uh, uh, blacks in the priesthood for instance. Well, Brigham Young said this. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, do you believe he's a prophet or not? Orson F. Pratt was a was an uh, apostle. Do you believe him or not? Orson Hyde said this. Do you believe him or not? And we've been put in that position of saying. Do I believe that they're a prophet or apostle, but, I, but am I in a position to say, but they were wrong on this issue? 
because we've been put in that bind. And that's why I say anti-Mormon material and websites attack us constantly on the comments and phrases and things that have been said by prophets in the past. Without our ability to say we are growing as a church, we're growing in understanding, we're growing in ability, and individual prophets are subject to what they know at that time. Now, I take Joseph Smith out of that step. I think Joseph Smith knew it all, but couldn't always say everything that he knew because the people didn't know and couldn't handle it. Outside of Joseph Smith, let's give the prophets a chance to grow, and that's including Alma. Does that make sense? Yeah. I just have a question as to why you want to take Joseph Smith out of that place. Because there was so much that he was seeing, especially because he himself, for instance, said um, that he, he knows so much more than he feels like he could tell the Latter-day Saints that after what he saw uh, in uh, the vision of uh, the, the three degrees of glory, uh, that he knew, he knew so much more. But even with him... There was still an understanding, even in late, uh, like early 1844, he still didn't know who was going to succeed him, exactly. So you're right, there is an element there where even Joseph Joseph Smith himself still was learning and growing and not understanding. That's why I have said before that I fully believe that if we had heard Joseph Smith give a talk on the day the church was organized about the resurrection... What would Joseph Smith have said about the resurrection? Especially if he only really had the Book of Mormon as his guide. What would he have said? Exactly what Alma is about to say. Which is, there is a resurrection of life. There's a resurrection of damnation. You will then be rewarded according to your works. Or you will be rewarded according to even your thoughts will condemn you. And if you're on that if if you're on the side of that resurrection of the damned, you're going to hell with fire and brimstone. And Joseph Smith on the day the church was organized most likely would have preached that pretty clearly because it was going to be 1832 before he was going to finally be taught more about what is really on the other side. It was his limited knowledge at the time. Yeah. One of the things I think confuses non-members is the concept of infallibility. <laughs> yes. Other faiths have a faith. The Pope is infallible. Uh, we don't really talk about infallibility in that, in that same sense. And I think that there's a, there's a lot of confusion. Yeah, and, and... See, in the same way, though, that I think if, if we go in and we teach... Uh, and I've mentioned this before. If, if we're going to go in and we're going to teach... Uh, uh, children that are about to be baptized that are seven and almost eight and we're going to go in and teach them about what baptism is and we're going to teach them that they go into the water and they come out clean at their level that makes sense is that is that really true No, No, it's not. Baptism is not a cleansing by the water. It's by the Spirit. And they're clean. What sins are we cleansing in an eight-year-old? Any sins prior to that are on the heads of the parent. They don't have any sins. So it's not true. But at that level, if they can understand that baptism is a cleansing process, I think there's kind of no harm, no foul on that one. But we have to understand that as they grow, we need, we need to not take things that we believed when we were 8 and still be believing them at 38. We have to grow ourselves. Okay? Does that make sense? So this whole process of growing... Now, why is all this so important? So now we go back to the Book of Mormon and we have to remember, okay, Alma's about to teach about the resurrection and he's limited in what he knows... He will learn more in the next 10 years. But he's preaching to a people with the lesser understanding and ability to understand the truth. Does that make sense? So if we get that, read it in that context. But don't believe that these sections in the Book of Mormon are the final word uh, to us as Latter-day Saints today about the resurrection. Because they're not. And in some ways, they are so overly simplistic... 
that we may misunderstand. And if you have a, if you're going to teach somebody about the doctrine about the doctrine of the resurrection and the spirit world, go to the doctrine and covenants section seventy six. Don't go to Alma twelve, thirteen, forty, forty one, forty two. Don't go there uh, unless you understand what it is that you're looking at. Yeah. Yeah, perplexed by the fire and brimstone of the Book of Mormon. <laughs> I mean, you really don't see hell. We don't talk about hell that no. way. No. We don't really. That's true. Here. You go, well, but it, but it's there. But it, we're going to talk about uh, that we're going to be judged according to our works. And in a sense, we and, and for the most part, we really aren't. But that's the, that's the layer we want to add on today, based on re- re- received knowledge and revelation that have come to all the brethren since then. Does that make sense? Okay. Questions? Yes? Can you still be questioned? Can you explain a little bit about what the definition of works you're talking about? Hang on to that. Perfect. L- let's, go right, let's go right with that. Okay. Now. So here's what here's what Alma's going to begin to say to these people with lesser understanding, and he's trying to take them from the beginning. From the beginning, um, verse twenty nine. He sent angels to converse with men, who caused them to behold his glory. Uh, Thirty one. He gave them commandments unto all men. Uh, when they first transgressed the first commandments, which were things temporal, and became as gods, knowing good and evil, placing them in a state to act. Therefore God gave them commandments, after having made them known unto them the plan of redemption. Okay? Um, and so based on that, uh, God did call, verse 33... God did call on men in the name of His Son, this being the plan of redemption. By the way, if you're ever wondering what the plan of redemption is, it is to call on the Son. Okay? Uh, If you repent and harden not your hearts, then I will have mercy. Uh, 34. Therefore, whoso repenteth and hardeneth not his heart, he shall have claim on mercy through mine only begotten Son unto remission of his sins and shall enter into my rest. So part of this he's trying to say is that if you will repent, you're going to receive a remission of your sins. We're talking to Nahors. What do they believe about remission of sins? They don't need it. In fact, I'll hop over here to Alma 15. Uh, Verse 15. The people in the land of Ammonihah, they remained hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. They had not repented of their sins, ascribing the power of Alma and Amulek to the devil. For they were the profession of Nahor and did not believe in the repentance of sins. Why should they have to repent of a sin? Because there was no sins. Whatever a man doeth... That's going to be the, this is going to be Korahor's doctrine, and he's going to be really kind of in the middle of this. We'll see this in Alma 30, or 29. 30. Alma 30. We don't need to repent, because by the way, if we need to repent, then we need a Savior to back us up. Yeah. But that's not really the law of Moses. <laughs> no, it really isn't. The, the lo- but, but you said earlier that they thought that they lived the law of Moses. So yeah. So, so, so in the law of Moses, how does remission of sins work? And this is actually really helpful for this, for this week, exactly. If you live the law of Moses, is there a need to remove the sins of the people? Sure there is. When does it happen? But specifically, what's happening this week in Judaism? Yom Kippur. What happens on the day of atonement? It's not so much about individual remissions of sins. It is about a collective remission of sins. And this is, this is the day on Yom Kippur, uh, right after Rosh Hashanah. Yom Kippur, where you're going to, where anciently they would bring into the, into the, the court uh, two goats. And they would, one would be designated the Azazel goat, and one would be designated the, the uh, Jehovah goat. Okay? And that by lots, you'd figure out which one was which. Then what they would do is that they would then 
placed their hands on the head of the Asazel goat and placed the sins of Israel on the goat. Then what do they do with the goat? No. Cast him out. The goat with the sins is cast out of the temple. What do they do with the Jehovah goat? Sacrifice him. Yeah, that blood on the Day of Atonement is actually the one, the sins went on the other guy. They, had kind of, they were kind of separating it out in the way that they were doing it. We believe it's all in the same one, but they were separating it out. That's just what they did. Yeah. So where did that all come from, and what was it supposed to mean, and is it really true? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> The, the, the tradition of the Asazel goat and, and all that? Yeah. We don't know. And the whole idea that collectively the sins of this group can be... Right. See, here's the fascinating part about this. And this is where, this is where we believe that the, uh, the Deuteronomist under Josiah really rewrote a lot of law. Because if you take that tradition that they were doing, and, and Josephus tells us this, and uh, we have other sources that tell us that, how they were doing this, you don't find the direction of that underneath uh, in, in Deuteronomy. It's not there. But they were doing it anyway. Where did they come from? Where did those traditions come from? A lot of what the Pharisees were doing at the time of the Savior showed up because they had developed their, their, their walls around the law to make sure we weren't messing up. They added additional things. But this is even back then. Even way before that, they were adding additional laws. And we don't know where they came from. We just know they were doing them. They weren't necessary. They weren't necessary. They were not really the law of Moses. No, these were addition to the law of Moses. Because if you just look at the law of Moses, as as what, what little bit we have left in Deuteronomy and Exodus, it's not there. We just know that was the tradition. That was their understanding of when the remission of sins would come. Okay? Does that make yeah, and for them it was also an apostasy process. You know, there is a growing if, you're, if you receive... Because here's the other problem with the Law of Moses. The minute we believe the Law of Moses, the same way that our Christian brothers get locked into the, the Bible as the Word and the, and the repository of all the stuff, then you no longer believe in ongoing revelation because you have the Word. In the very same way, the Deuteronomist would say, we don't need a Savior to tell us more. We don't need ongoing revelation from prophets. We have the law. We don't need any more. Salvation comes from the law. Obedience to the law. Salvation from the law. And we don't need anything else above that. And, yeah? Uh, through this discussion, it reminds me of a question that I've been thinking about for weeks. Um, okay, my son had a cello teacher, Jeff, very Jewish, got to know, you know, a little bit about. Yeah. And, and he basically told me that Yom Kippur was like a whole week of, this is what he, he said, and it was a whole week of reflection and, and Yeah. Um, so, my question is, if you don't believe in Christ, Sounds like thunder. Then, is it possible to sin? Under the law of Moses? Well, under any law, anybody these days, you know, like, like those that don't believe in Christ, and they repent. <coughs> yeah, they can turn around and stop doing what they're doing, but you're right. That's, that's why when we get to the doctrine of Christ, we're going to say, how do you repent? And, and we rely wholly on the merits of the Son to do that. You take the, the doctrine of the Son out of it, and now repentance is moot. Yeah. Well, that depends on what you think the repentance is. Right. You know, right. anybody can repent because it just means to turn back, please God. Yeah, and now I'm going to be better. Well, right. Or, or could you change? I mean, an atheist can repent. Right. You know, is it to, to change? And to do better. But to us, they can and especially if you look at repentance as turning around or turning back 
You're right, we can. But when we're talking about the fact that there's a sin that remains until it is, until it is blotted out so that you can stand in front of God clean, then it's more than that. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, good. It's in Leviticus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, well, exactly. So th- that's why part of what you're what you're getting as as Alma's trying to teach these hard-hearted people, he's starting to introduce doctrines about the remission of sins, and they're not going to get th- this. Doesn't he's having to go against everything that they have believed to this point? They don't believe they need it. And not only that, if I ever have done something wrong that I shouldn't have done, even against the law of Moses, I'm going to depend on on my attorneys to get me off. I think we're forgetting the fact that repentance is two parts, mercy and justice. Yes. And so anybody can change and do better. And there's no justice, there's, there's mercy. And you're, you're changing and doing better. But until you accept Christ and His payment for those sins, yes. there's no justice. So repentance is, is more. And, and we have to accept Christ because He paid the price. Yeah. Otherwise, we individually pay right. the price. It's very true. And yet, over and over and over in the Book of Mormon, we're still going to find out there's a, there's a resurrection of works. That we're going to be judged according to our works. And it seems to leave out the doctrine of Christ. That's because he was preaching to people that didn't yet understand that doctrine. Yeah. Yes. And the power of the atonement really makes it possible for, for instance, this uh, Jewish friend of mine to come around, be better, repent. Uh, but the actual, and, and it also, what he said reminded me that, you know, in the last days, um, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Yeah. Christ. So he has. The power of the atonement helping him to repent or turn around, and yet he will one day, you know. Eventually, they'll have to know, won't they? But they have to. But they have to be taught, and th- and that's why I think that's part of what Alma was beginning to understand was that sometimes when, when, especially when we have people that have maybe left the church or struggling with the church, we watch the injustices that happen among us. I think we have to con- always consider that this life is on both sides of the veil until the resurrection. That this whole learning process continues here, we get to the next life, we keep on learning some of the physical limitations that we might have had due to cultural stuff or genetics is removed when the body is laid in the grave and now we have a chance to be taught even more. Because at the end of the day, are we, re- are we saved by our works? No. no. We are saved by our knowledge of the Savior and our ability to then completely submit to Him as that He's the one that will that will cleanse our garments and make Him clean. Okay? Yeah. Again, by works, does that include ordinances? Ah. Thank you. So let's have that discussion for a second. Because that's, I think, where we get tripped up. Are we saved by our works? Then we say, well, wait a minute. There are saving ordinances of the gospel that we must participate in. We must be baptized. We must, if we want to be exalted, we must must be endowed. Aren't those works? Aren't those things that we have done? Okay. Now, think about how that one works. (coughs) 
If, I, if I'm going to go through the doctrine of baptism, it's something that I need to do. And so I'm actually baptized. I was, I was uh, sinful. Now I've been baptized. Does that in and of itself make me clean? No. When do I become clean? Through the Holy Ghost that does the cleansing, and the Holy Ghost can do it under the cleansing. Why? Why is that possible? Because of the Son. Because of the grace of Jesus Christ. So even when we are, there are certain saving ordinances that need to be done, but at the end of the day, what makes those ordinances uh, salvationable? Exaltationable. Well, it's all through Christ at Yes, it is true. So at the end of the day, are we saved by works or by grace? It's still grace. Even though there are ordinances that we must partake of. Yeah. Grace is the bottom line. It is the bottom line. But we still have to do certain things. Sure. We have to place ourselves in a position to be able to accept God's grace. And that means some obedience. We receive the greater light. We have to place ourselves in a position to do that. So it still works for us. We, we have to open the door. I stand at the door and knock. We've got to open the door. But it, so we do that. Was it still our works that did it? No, it's still grace. That, that, that's, why, that's why it always comes back full circle that we have to understand that even in our obedience, none of our obedience saves us. It just doesn't. But again, if we read the Book of Mormon, it sounds like it does. That's why I guess I'm dragging this out long enough, because I need us to not get tripped up by that idea. President? I'd like to think of that we're in partnership. Yeah. We're children of God, and He has a human resource development plan, if you will. And it has two parts to it. There becomes a universal availability of salvation if we choose to partake of it. Yeah. And it requires us to seek it. So baptism requires a positive, conscious choice. Yeah, to, to ability to act. The image of God written upon our face requires a conscious choice to seek God yeah. and to live His commandments. And it says right there through the repentance and faith, the Holy Ghost is able to sanctify us. So we right. start becoming with the image of God written on our faces. We become like Him. Yeah. And so, because of His grace, all that becomes it has efficacy. It it works. So, so the atonement of Christ is worthless if we don't. Yeah, it's as if we had never it had never happened because we 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 locked it up. If we do seek it in our hearts, strive. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. (laughs) We believe that we are all mankind are. Are through the atonement. Through the atonement. Yeah. Uh, Isn't that cool? Through the atonement of Christ. So that kind of sums it up. Okay. Yeah. President. But we can disqualify ourselves. Yes. Absolutely. Right. We're saved by grace, but our but our works. And and again, if we go back to what he's saying in twelve. Um, what he's saying is uh, how, how that process works, he says. Verse 11. They that will harden their hearts, to them is given the lesser portion of the word until they know nothing concerning the mysteries. Part of a disobedience means that we learn less and less and less. We have less and less light. And, be, and then they are taken captive by the devil and led down his will to de, by his will down to destruction. This is what's meant by the chains of hell. Exactly right. Our our negative works can block out that light, and then we can be led because we don't understand the mysteries. Yeah. I don't. To me, it's still. I know you say the bottom line is grace, which we can't. But there's still works that are involved. There are things that we have to do that allow us to apply for the that that allow that grace to be applied to us. Okay. One, one thought I just had was yeah. Yes. Yes. It's not something that we earn. If we earn it, it's a wage. If we receive it like that, it's a gift. It's a gift. Yes. The gifts of the Spirit. Perfect. 
We can reject the gift. And the majority of the world rejects the gift. If we accept the gift, we haven't done work. We have just said, I'll take the gift. Yeah. So it's not going to be a work. It's an acceptance. Beautiful. I could not have said it any better. Yeah. I think that was done nicely. Can we go back to Yom Kippur for just a minute? Oh, sure. I think one of the difficulties that we have in understanding Jewish tradition is that we, um, our religion is an individual religion. Yeah. The Savior is individual. Yeah. With all this stuff we've been elaborating. But for the Jew, their identity is a collective identity. That's a... Perfect way to stab, absolutely. So they would be redeemed as a group, they would be damned as a group. Perfect. Okay, now, we've got 20 minutes. Let me hit one other thing that I want to, I want you to be able to see some things in context. With Great discussion. Got you thinking. Now, now as you go back and you start taking a look at all the stuff on resurrection of, and being judged by works and everything, do some studying, do some digging on this because this is, this is really well done. Alma does an interesting thing in the middle of this discussion with Zezrum and, and with the other lawyer that's asking questions. Suddenly in the middle of this discussion about the resurrection, he seems like he goes off in a little bit of a side thing, but it's really not. Um, way back in the beginning, when he first walks into uh, Ammonihah, or Ammonia, as uh, <laughs> President Nugdorf says, Ammonia with Amalek, <laughs> Um, the first question that they ask him is if God is so great and these things are so important why did the Lord send one person because Amulek hasn't stood up yet if it's so great why would the Lord send only one person because for one thing in the law of Moses we understand that all these things have to be done by the law of witnesses and that's at least Two. If this is so big a deal, why only one? So um, Alma's going to stop in the middle of this discussion, and now suddenly we get Alma thirteen. Uh, and and this is and when I taught this about four years ago, I spent an entire lesson on the first few verses of Alma thirteen, because Alma thirteen, those first few verses, he's quoting from somewhere. It is the only place in the Book of Mormon that we have a discussion about the pre-existence. And it is among the deepest doctrine anywhere in the Book of Mormon. It is fabulous about the, the uh, a preparatory redemption. The possibility of the atonement being active before this life in our lives. The possibility that we might have sinned in the prior life and then had to redraw on the atonement before we came to this life. It's all there in that in the first few verses of 13, which I'm not going to go through today. <laughs> it's a great discussion. Read it, please. But in Alma 13, I want to focus a little bit more on where he goes. So he's going to talk about, um, through the first nine verses, this is where high priests came from. They're ordained before this world. Here they are. And then he's going to say, say, now concerning this holy order. Um, Verse 11. These priests were sanctified. Their garments were washed. And I I, would that you should humble yourself. Humble yourself even as the people in the days of Melchizedek. Now. He's now going to give us a discourse on Melchizedek. And the question is why? Where in the middle of all of this about resurrection and all of this about... Where, why are we suddenly getting a discourse on Melchizedek? Um, now, one thing I would say to you... By the way, would they have known about Melchizedek? Remember, the, these are... The, the, these Nahors, are, would they see themselves as religious? Would they check the census box and say, yes, I am a religious person? Absolutely. They see themselves as religious. Do they study their scriptures? Oh, they do. Okay. And he's going to say, look at verse 20, and I'll come back. I need not rehearse the matter, talking about Melchizedek, Uh, what I have said may suffice. Behold, the scriptures are before you. You will rest them to your own destruction. Now, in the Old Testament, how much do we have on Melchizedek? 
few verses, right? Oh, he was the great high priest of Salem, Jerusalem. And, and Abraham paid his tithes to him, and, and, and Melchizedek served under his father. It's one of the reasons why some people would believe, Bruce R. McConkie being one of those that believed that maybe Melchizedek was Shem, was Shem <coughs> son of Noah. Yeah. Kind of interesting, but we don't know. There's no way to know. We just know he was, a, he was an unbelievable high priest. But we don't have it. Did the Nahors have the greater story on Melchizedek? Yes. He's quoting them. And he's saying, you have the scriptures in front of you. Rest them to your destruction. And he's also saying, now on this idea of me being walking into Ammonihah all by myself, let me tell you who I am. I am a priest from the order of Melchizedek. That's who I am. I am a Melchizedek priest of his order. Wow. He said that? Alma does. That's who I am. I'm of his order. Okay? Now, Melchizedek, being exercised mighty faith, received the high priesthood, preached repentance unto the people. Uh, he did establish peace, did reign under his father. Uh, and then he says to them, Okay, now, under this authority, verse 21, Now is the time to repent, for the day of salvation draweth nigh. Now, what do we know about Melchizedek? Uh, let me hop over, because this now sets us up. From the Joseph Smith translation, here's one of the things that we know about Melchizedek. Verse 26, I've got it right, I put it in right between 9 and 10. Now Melchizedek was a man of faith who wrought righteousness, and when a child he feared God, he stopped the mouths of lion, and did what? Quench the violence of fire. Hold on to that. Okay, yeah. That is in the Joseph Smith translation. I think it's I think it's Genesis twenty-eight. No, 20... Well, it's 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 26. It's verse 26 of something. (laughs) I didn't put the chapter. But it's in the Joseph Smith translation. Okay? All right. Now, this is important. This becomes really critical that you understand now what happens in Ammonihah. What does happen in Ammonihah after Alma and Amulek get done preaching? Yes! They're going to then who gets cast out? The man, who gets left behind? The women and children. Okay, now. Verse 8, one more painful things. Um, Verse 7, they spit upon him and cast him out. Uh, Those that had believed in the words of spoken by Almi and Amulek were cast out. They sent men to stone them. Verse 8, they brought wives and children together and who believed been taught and caused that they should be cast into the fire. Along with the records which contain the Holy Scriptures, it tells you that they weren't just stone or metal, that they were actually, uh, that they could burn. Okay? Uh, That they might be burned and destroyed by the fire. Uh, Now, it came to pass that Alma and Amulek were carried forth to the place of martyrdom that they might witness the destruction of those who had been consumed by fire. Who do you think was the first people cast into the fire, by the way? If, they, if Alma and Amulek are preaching, and Amulek is saying, I'm of no small reputation, you guys all know who I am, who's the first ones into the fire? His family. That would be the first place they would go. Now, we know that his father and some of his brethren betrayed him, and they might have been the ones to show the mob where he lived. But the first ones into the fire had to be his family. That's why at the very end of this, it's going to say Alma took Amulek to his house because his family was gone. And comforted him. Yeah. But listen to what happens now. They take him to the place of martyrdom that they might witness the destruction of those who are consumed by fire. And then Amulek sees the pains of the women and children, his wife and kids as well, consuming in the fire. He's pained and he says unto Alma, how can we witness this awful scene? Therefore let us stretch forth our hands and exercise the power of God which is in us. Which power? 
ceiling power. The ceiling power, specifically of what order? Melchizedek. We know that the power of Melchizedek is the power to stop the mouths of lions and stop the violence of fire. We can do this. Alma knew he could do this. And Alma says to him, The Spirit constraineth me that I must not stretch forth my hand. Uh, and and I just I can't even imagine how painful that would be to know that you could stop it and can't. Not allowed to. I have to let this thing go. Now, and then Amulek says unto Alma, maybe they'll burn us also. I think there's part of him that says, I kind of hope they will. If I have to keep watching what I'm watching, I, I would be okay with that. This is too much. In fact, I'd rather join my family on the other side. Wow. And then Alma says, well, be it according to the, the will of the Lord, our work isn't finished. They will not burn us. Now, watch, watch, this is kind of, uh, this is what makes it worse, I think. Look at verse 14. Now, here comes the chief judge of the land in verse 14. He smites them with the hand on the cheeks, and he says unto them, After what ye have seen, will you preach unto this people that they shall be cast into a lake of fire and brimstone? We're going to recreate this. And then he says, Behold, ye see that ye have not power to save them. Now look at verse 16. Now this judge was after the order and profession of Nahor. What you're getting here is a battle of uh, uh, striving for power between two competing orders in the idea of the chief judge. Which order is winning out? The order of Melchizedek or the order of our beloved Nahor? Who's going to win? In their eyes, it's Nahor at this moment. And, and how can they prove that the Nahors are winning? Because they didn't say... They're, they're, they're didn't, and, and we have to prove. See, you don't have the power. You said you have the power. You, said, you just told us that you were of the order of Melchizedek. Well, Melchizedek can stop fire. Mm-hmm. And you're not. Um... Then a fifteen. What say ye for yourselves? This this judge was of the order and faith of Nahor. Then nineteen. It came to pass that the chief that the judge stood again. Why do you not answer the words of the people? Know ye not that I have power? I have power that you don't. You pretended as a priest of Melchizedek to have power. You don't. Not only do you not have power, who has the power? As chief judge, I have the power. I have power to deliver you up into the flames. He commanded them to speak. They answered nothing. They depart. They come back. Uh, Verse 20. Will you stand again and judge his people and condemn our law? If you have such great power, why do you not deliver yourselves? And then they do many things like gnashing their teeth and spitting on them, saying, How shall we look when we are damned? By the way, has that moment ever been repeated that we know of in history? Where somebody was gnashing and spitting and saying, this, how, is this how we'll look when we're damned? Christ. Where? The high priest. The high priest, okay, of, um, with Jesus. But specifically, is this how we'll look when we're damned? Any other specific time? And there is one. Joseph Smith. During, during the uh, mobbing and the tar and feathering outside the John Johnson home, when, the, when they pulled them out, out of that front room there in the John Johnson home and out across the cane breaks that, that, that night, and then they were clawing on him, and that's exactly what it is that they said. Is this how we shall look when we are damned? Satan's never very original. He just doesn't have anything. Okay? Okay. Um, 
20. If this one will have great power, then they're going to mock them. And, and uh, 24, chief judge comes and smokes them again and says, if you have the power of good God, deliver yourself from the, these bands, then we will believe that the Lord will destroy this people according to your words. Okay? Then 25, Mormon will put this little final note in there. They came forth the first to the last. Uh, and then and then the power of God was upon Alma and Amulek, and they rose and stood on their feet. How long, O Lord? Get, then they break the cords, and then they are destroyed. And Amulek and, and Alma went forth out of the prison. They were not hurt, for the Lord hath granted unto them power... According to what? Their faith, which we could also say grace. Uh, according to their faith, which was in Christ. And they came forth out of the prison. Uh, then there's a great noise, and everybody comes running. Okay. Amazing stuff. That we have this battle of orders. Who has the power? In the eyes of Satan, it's always been a battle of power. Who will have the power? Who will have the strength to be able to do things? Um, ultimately, for the, the, uh, the people of Ammonihah, just as it was for a lot of the zealots living in Jerusalem, they believed that power came from living the law of Moses. The, the, uh, the people at uh, Qumran... The, the keepers of the Dead Sea Scrolls, in their community scrolls, they believed that one day that the evil forces would come upon them to destroy them, and that because of their zealous keeping of the law, they would be protected. And so when the, when, uh, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, and you could... Uh, you know, the, the temple is burning and they come streaming out of there to move south, continue to destroy. And they look up at Qumran, coming down the riverbed probably, down towards Qumran, and they're going to look out and see the Roman legions coming. They believed at that moment that their obedience in the law would save them. And instead they were destroyed. So, where do we get to then? How is our obedience, how is our works in our laws? Well, at the end of the day, we are saved by grace. We are not saved by our works. And, uh, and so our, our works won't save us. Our obedience and love and following and submission to and trusting in His arm and in the atonement is what saves us. And as, as we do that, we find that there is great power. And isn't it interesting that the power of the church, the power of President Monson, is not in, uh, in big showy, bringing down fire or destroying cities. In fact, there would be people looking on the outside going, well, there seem to be some people leaving the Mormon church. They must not have very much truth. They must not have very much power. But quietly... The church moves forward, the saints are strengthened, the knowledge is here, and salvation comes through the priests of Melchizedek, who rely wholly on the Lord who is mighty to save. I pray that we can do that and trust in His name in all that we do. And I do that in His name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the many blessings God has given us. We're grateful that we're able to be just the Built Institute class today. We're grateful for Brother Hinckley and for all his knowledge that he is able to expound to us every week. We're grateful for all the things that we've learned in 